Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Thank you for downloading this podcast. Share your business story with us and we could be giving you the advice and support you need to take it to the next level. 702 Cape Talk Business Accelerator with Nedbank. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Hello, Chris. Nice to be with you again. Hey, good morning. Thank you. So what's this about Google and cancer? What's the link there? Well, in the last, excuse me a second, In the last week or so, Google have unveiled this project. They're actually at a conference run by the Wall Street Journal in America. And at this presentation, they said, look, we're going to carry on searching the web, but we're also now going to start searching the bloodstream, would you believe? And the thing we're going to search for, cancer and other diseases. Now, they're not going to do it with people typing little keywords and key phrases into a search box. They're actually going to do it using nanoparticles. And they have a research laboratory called the Google X Laboratory. And this laboratory has got more than 100 members of staff now working on this project. Their aim is to try to produce tiny particles, which are so tiny that you could get millions of them inside a grain of sand. You would inject these into the bloodstream. They would go around the body and then have a chemical conversation with all of the cells and tissues in your body. The idea being that you could put on the surfaces of these particles chemical structures which if they bumped into a cell with a similar chemical or a particular marker on its surface, it could change the configuration of the chemical markers on the surfaces of the particles, and this would effectively be a way of the particles storing information. You then lure the particles to just one part of the body because you, for instance, make them magnetic, and then you hold a magnet over the skin of, for instance, your wrist, and then you shine a light into the skin, into the blood vessels where these particles will be lurking, and the light interacts with them and these surface molecules that have got a specific shape, and if their shape has changed, then the way the light interacts with them will be slightly different, so the signal they send back will be slightly different, and in this way you can read out of them the data that they're now storing about their experiences of of going around your body, and you could use this technique to monitor for a range of different uh, disorders, such as cancers, such as other metabolic disorders, and so on. You could then basically home in on when Mm. a person's well or unwell and you could do it really quickly or even 24 7 you could have a continuous monitoring system running which keeps tabs on someone's health all the time all right and uh chris there's been a lot of conversation on the show about stroke awareness uh spreading information we lost a colleague recently uh from stroke i received an email about two weeks ago which i forgot to, to 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 raise last week somebody wanted to know is it possible for somebody who doesn't suffer from high blood pressure to suddenly uh without warning have their blood pressure rise and then experience a stroke Blood pressure is what we call a very dynamic thing. It's changing all the time. And although the accepted normal healthy blood pressure for an adult is about 120 millimetres of mercury over 80 millimetres of mercury, that's the difference between when your heart is actively beating and when it's relaxing. Those are why you've got two numbers. When you do things, when you're active 
or when you don't do things when you go to sleep, that number changes radically. So if you go running up the stairs, your blood pressure can climb very, very high. When you then become recumbent and relax, your blood pressure will drop to the lowest it can drop to, which is normal for you. So there's no one right answer to, mm-hmm. to blood pressure. What appears to be damaging is when people have sustained, chronically elevated blood pressure, which suggests that the blood vessels in your body are continuously over-constricted for some reason. This happens to some people. This means that the tension in the wall of the blood vessel is chronically elevated, and this is a, a risk factor for damage to smaller blood vessels in the brain, which can cause chronic uh, age-related acceleration. It can also encourage focal points of damage in the walls of these blood vessels to exaggerate the the damage. So if you've got an area of an artery with a weakness, then it can begin to dilate. That's called an aneurysm. And Mm. if you have an aneurysm, if you have an an episode of high blood pressure, you're more likely for that aneurysm to pop during that period. And if you pop an aneurysm, a a Mm. dilated blood vessel in your brain, you get bleeding into the space around the brain, and this is called a subarachnoid hemorrhage. You can also get bleeding inside the brain, and that's called an intracerebral hemorrhage. And that's even more catastrophic when that happens. Yeah. Let's go to Stephen. Stephen in Somerset West, you've got an interesting question. Good morning. I trust you both well. I'd like to listen to the answer on the radio. Why does one's fingernails grow quicker than toenails? I mean, I cut my fingernails more than my toenails. And then I asked another question, and I forgot the answer. Why, if we're in a group of people, I yawn, that sets a lot of other people yawning as well? Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thank you. Hi, Stephen. So why should there be a difference in rate of nail growth between hands and feet? I don't know what the precise measurements are, but I know that your fingernails and toenails do grow in the order of four to five millimetres every... I think you probably add a centimetre of nail a year, don't you? So um, I didn't know there was a difference between feet and toes, but then I've never measured it. But thinking about it logically you are probably more likely because your hands are more active and you're doing more things with your fingers more of the time, you're you're probably wearing down your nails on your hands faster than you're wearing down the nails on your feet. So there would probably be an evolutionary advantage to renewing your nails on your fingers slightly more rapidly than the ones on your toes. But I'd have to check the actual numbers. Uh, The other question is about... um, the infectiousness of yawning. Now, there's a number of theories on why yawns may be contagious. And someone even wrote to me the other day and said, Mm. can can a a pet catch your yawns? Uh, He said that he watched... He he knows it works in reverse because he saw his hamster yawn and it made him want to (laughs) yawn. Does the reverse happen? We don't think so because we don't think that animals necessarily are uh, susceptible to the same phenomenon that we are, but they definitely do yawn. In a human group, we're a social group of animals and yawning is often a sign of tiredness or sleepiness. One suggestion is that it's all to do with fatigue. Mm -hmm. Now, the experiment that's been done is a guy in New York, uh, Gordon Gallup, did this experiment. They took a whole load of university students and they showed them videos of other people yawning and they totted up how often the people yawned in sympathy. And there was nearly, it was really high, 70 to 100% of the time the students yawned when the person on the screen yawned. The next thing they did was to give the people a cold compress to hold against their forehead or they said they had to sit there and breathe with their mouth open and watch the video again. Now, when they gave them the cold compress, the rate of sympathetic yawning alongside the video fell to zero. When the people breathed through their mouth, the rate of yawning increased to nearly 100%. 
Why this difference? Well, their theory is that when you uh, breathe through your nose, you're actually helping to cool your brain down, that when you breathe through your mouth, you are not cooling your brain down and holding the cold compress on your head cools your brain down. Yawning is therefore a way of increasing the rate of brain cooling. When you are tired, your brain temperature, because of metabolic changes, does go up and therefore you yawn to compensate for tiredness. Why should it be contagious between people? Because if you're winding the clock back millions of years or hundreds of thousands of years at least, if you're sitting in a little group and there might be some other people creeping up on you or some wild animal is going to attack you in the dark, it's important that everyone remains vigilant. If one person's brain's on the blink because they're getting tired, it's much better that everyone then re-alerts themselves by yawning to cool their brain and re-establish alertness as a group because you're less likely to be preyed upon under those circumstances. Very interesting. Thank you very much. Uh, Thomas, what did, did you call an ad break? Yes, okay. And uh, Johnny, I see your call. Beggy, Caroline, I'm coming to you in a moment. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. 021-446-0567 or double Is it Johnny in Easteras? Hi. Hi, really. Hi, Chris. Uh, my question is about alternate realities. Now, Schrodinger's uh, equation explains about uh, on alternate realities. So when I look in the mirror, do I see an alternate reality or is it just a quantum reflection? Now, all this in opposed when I shine a, a laser beam through a, a glass, I would see the beam go through and I would see a reflection on the one side. You understand my question? So, Johnny, when you're saying what, what are you actually seeing reflected at you in the glass, because light is coming away from, you, from your dashing face and it is reflecting in the glass and coming back to you, what's happening is that photons, which are packets of light, which have come off of the room, are hitting your face. They're interacting with the, atom, the atomic structure of the things that make up your face, the, the cloud of electrons around the particles in your face. Those electrons are wiggling a little bit, and when electrons wiggle a little bit, they produce new photons. The photons of light come away from your face and they hit the mirror. The mirror has a silver surface behind the glass. The silver has a lot, of, again, of, of electrons around the atoms, which the photons or packets of light hit. They make the electrons around those particles shake and vibrate around, this again regenerates new photons, which are then sent back to your eye, and the photons go into your eye, and they interact with the visual pigment in your retina, which turns those photons, or light waves, into brain waves, quite literally, that your visual system can see. So mm-hmm. the photon that came out of the light bulb and hit your head is a different one that then came away from your head and hit the mirror, and it's a different photon again that came out of the mirror and went into your eye so you could see your reflection. But the information in those photons about what they've interacted with is the same. Thanks, Johnny. And uh, Carol, Carol in Greenpoint, good morning. Good morning. Yes, I have a three-year-old son. We often go running on the beach. Now, I often think if he runs for one kilometre and I run for one kilometre, will it tire him out more than it does me? I mean, his body's smaller, so I would assume he uses less energy to run the same distance. (laughs) I'm so interested in that answer. um, 
<laughs> my legs are longer than both of the, the legs of my children, but at the same time, they seem to have boundless energy, yeah. and what knackers me out doesn't, doesn't seem to touch them. But the, the bottom line is, if you're a fit adult with much longer legs, then your stride length is much greater. So, in fact, you're doing slightly less work uh, relative to your body size than they are to move around, but you're moving more mass than they are, um, I don't mean that in a nasty way, you're just bigger than them, and therefore actually you've got to do more work to accelerate your your mass over the distance that you're running. So th there will there is an equation that relates how metabolically active you are or how much energy you burn to move at a certain rate over a certain time, and it's all to do with the, the length of your legs. So proportional to the body size, I don't think your child is doing any more work proportionally than you, but as they're likely to be less fit or less trained and also a bit more vulnerable because they're small, mm. then uh, actually they're, they're going to find it a bit tougher. But because they're smaller, they're going to find it correspondingly easier. So I think it's probably going to work out roughly the same. That said, when you're walking, the thing to bear in mind, I've noticed with my kids when I'm walking, they because their legs are shorter than mine, one stride for me is two for them so they've actually often got to run to keep up and yes. running is intrinsically going to be a bit more tiring but uh, speed for speed and work for work there should be not much difference between you because you're proportionally smaller than each other lovely question carol thank you b in dunkeld good morning uh, i just would like to ask the naked scientist when i use my ipad i get a terrible tingling in my hand my hand gets very hot could this affect my health at all um, you know, I don't know what to do about it. Thank you so much. I listen on the radio. Hello, B. I wonder if the, the tingling you're experiencing is a nerve phenomenon brought on by having to put your hand in a certain position. Um, it sounds a bit like a sort of carpal tunnel type pain, which is a condition where, owing to the wrist being a point of restriction, where blood vessels, nerves and the tendons for your muscles all have to pass inside a, a tendinous or a, a cartilaginous sheet called the flexor retinaculum this can squeeze nerves and it tends to get worse as people age and ca characteristically people wake up in the night saying that they've got pins and needles in their hands and pain and they, they find they have to dangle their hand over the side of the bed and that kind of thing shake it around to to get rid of it it may be that when you're using your um, handheld device that you're holding your hand and your wrist in a certain position or the hand that you're using it with in a certain position and this is putting pressure on one of the three nerves that runs into your hand to supply the skin and muscles of your hand and that's what's producing these funny sensations. I, I would suggest that you find out if it's reproducible. When you hold that hand in a certain position every time, does it keep on happening? If it does, and it's the same sort of symptoms in the same distribution over your skin every time, it does sound like it's a nerve that's being pinched. And that being the case, it might be worth going off to see a doctor because mm. they can then examine it. And there's a very simple process. If it is something like carpal tunnel syndrome, there's a very, very simple process that can relieve that. And it may be that the other side will do it as well. And, and they, they might want to do both at once. But if it does keep happening like that, probably worth a trip to see the doctor to see if anything can be done. Caroline, Caroline, you are calling us from the Val. Good morning. Um, good morning, Reedy. Good morning, Chris. Chris, I'm just interested about um, uh, what you call these things in your eyes, cataracts. I was under the impression of something that actually grows over the eye, but now I've been told that it's not. The eye just discolors over time. And I've actually been diagnosed with them, and I have to have them removed next week, and I'm a bit apprehensive about having it done. Is this correct? Is it something that just grows over, or what happens? Okay. First of all, let me reassure you, this is one of the commonest and also one of the 
oldest operations ever performed. There's evidence from ancient Rome 2,000 years ago that this procedure was being performed then and quite possibly even before that in parts of Asia. What actually happens? Well, inside your eye, after light goes through the front of your eye, which is the cornea, the next thing it does is to go through a structure which is the lens. The lens sits inside a little bag inside the eye and the bag has got muscles attached to it and those muscles can pull on the lens and make it go thin or they can squeeze the lens and this makes it become thinner and fatter. And this changes the focal length. It either makes it a stronger or a weaker lens which is how light is then focused onto the back of the eye, the retina, where you turn light waves into brain waves. Now over time the material that's in the lens, the proteins, because the lens is not renewed during your life, the lens you die with is the one you're born with. So it has to last a lifetime. And the proteins which make up the lens slowly over time get damaged. And this can be under the influence of chemicals in the bloodstream, natural oxidative stress from ageing, and also things like ultraviolet light, which is naturally present in the environment. The effect of changing and damaging these proteins in this way is that they, they, instead of having a lovely crystalline regular shape which lets light come through just as it should do, they bow and bend and as a result the light that comes through gets distorted and scattered. And this means that the cataract begins to grow as effectively a discoloration of the lens. And when you look into the eye using a, f a fundoscope, one of these devices doctors hold up to your eye to look, you can actually see that the lens is beginning to scatter light and look a foggy white colour. And that's because more light is being bounced back out of the eye than going through. And if less light goes through, and it goes through in a less straight line because it's scattering around, it makes the image on the back of the eye more blurry and also because less light's going in, it makes light less bright. And this can affect people's colour perception, it affects their acuity of vision, and also it means that when, when it does get dark, people really struggle in low light because you, you can't pick out the contrasts between, uh, say, a step or an object in the dark, so you're more likely to have an accident. But it's very easy to fix, and the way they fix it is that you make a tiny incision in the side of the eye the area called the limbus where the white part of the eye meets the iris, the coloured part, you can go in there, the ophthalmologist will open up the bag that the lens is in and they've got a very special process, it's called phaco emulsion and you actually break down the lens by ultrasound inside that little bag and suck up the pieces and then you insert a new lens made of plastic which takes over the function of the old lens focuses the light again but because it's completely clear and clean you have a beautiful view of the world and most people say it's almost transformative because they've forgotten how good the world should wow. look because they got used to it looking all blurry like it was before. Thanks Caroline and then is it uh, Prince in Protea Glen, what do you want to ask? Yes, thanks uh, for taking my call. You know, uh, out of curiosity, um, I just want to ask the, uh, the naked scientist here I'm suffering from a condition called congenital anosmia, where I was born without sense of smell. Um, my dad and my sister also don't have sense of smell. But as an adult now, I just wonder, uh, how is it, uh, is it reversed? Uh, how does it affect your, um, for example, affect, affection towards food and stuff like that? Because sometimes I lose appetite and... Because uh, you can't smell yeah, the I just food. want to know. Yeah, like, is it reversible? That's your question. 
Yeah, if it's reversible, yeah. How interesting. No one's ever called in with anything quite like that, but it is a, a well-known phenomenon, and it sounds like you're saying that you have other members of your family affected. It sounds like it's going to be a genetic thing in your case, and these sorts of things are known. There are some genes which are linked to this condition. It is or arises for a number of reasons. The way the smell system works is at the top of your nose are or is a patch of tissue called olfactory epithelium and projecting through that are fine sprays of nerve endings which have on their surfaces these chemical docking stations or receptors which are a specific shape and they're looking for different molecules coming up your nose in the air which have a shape which is the counterpart to the shape of the receptor so the two can dock together and when that happens it triggers a barrage of impulses to be fired off by that nerve and it fires it up through a sieve-type plate at the top of your nose into your brain, and on the bottom of your brain is a structure called the olfactory tract, at the end of which is the olfactory bulb. These nerve cells connect into there and fire impulses into that olfactory bulb, and that then sends the information into your olfactory cortex, the part of your brain that decodes what you're smelling, and it works out, based on all of the independent signals coming in, what the bouquet of whatever you're smelling is. And, of course, most of what we call taste is, in fact, smell, because when you put something into your mouth, it's the volatile chemicals in the food that you're eating oh. which go up to the back of your mouth and then up into your nose and are detected by your olfactory system. But because you're putting the food into your mouth, the brain mixes all of those senses together, the texture, the temperature, the five, six flavours that your tongue... or flavours or, or sensations your tongue can determine, and... All of that's integrated to give us what we call our taste phenomenon. Now, the cause of these congenital anosmias can be a range of things. Sometimes it's because the nerve cells that are supposed to be the detectors don't grow properly. Sometimes it's because the message gets interrupted on its way between those nerve cells in the nose and the brain. Either way, the message doesn't get through. The problem is that this, of course, affects your taste sensations because you can't experience the, the full spectrum of taste that you should be able to. You only get the very limited repertoire that the tongue is capable of picking up. And this does make things taste very strange. And it, some people say it makes it taste very bland. Some people say it means that they don't have a very good appetite. The, the problem is that with a congenital thing like this, something you're born with, it's very hard to reverse it. In some cases it can be reversed if it's a simple thing that, that is easy to fix, but very often these things are a bit more subtle because they're about the, the presence or absence of the right nerve cells and that kind of thing, so it may be a more tricky one to fix, I'm afraid. But mm. great question. Thank you very it, much. It was indeed. Well, Chris, time flies as usual. We will speak to you again next week. Oh, I'm looking forward to it already. Ta-da. Bye-bye. Cheers, Reedy. Bye-bye. And we are going to podcast this. And hey, your questions are so fabulous. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.